0: Open God's holy word to the 21st psalm. The 21st psalm. O Yahweh, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation, how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon His head. He asked life of you. You gave it to Him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on Him. For you make Him most blessed forever. You make Him glad with the joy of your presence. For the King trusts in Yahweh. And through through the steadfast love of the Most High, He shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. Yahweh will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. Your... You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O God, O Yahweh, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our self-centeredness on display that even whenever we come to a portion of your Word, such as the Psalms, we want to make it all about us and liberate us to see the glory of your King who represents us, your people, and to find our joy not in your being centered on us, but to find our joy in loving what you most love, Father your Son, and to find our joy in Christ who so loves the Father and the Spirit who is caught up in this love between them. Father, I pray that our worship be deeply Trinitarian this morning, that it center on our unfathomable God. In Christ's name I ask this. Amen. This psalm, like so many, is to the choir master. That begs the question, who, or how, rather, are the people of God to take up this psalm? Many take not only this psalm up, but the psalms in general in a way that's wildly out of harmony with the music. As the rhyme pattern of Hebrew poetry is one more of thought and idea than of sound, likewise the harmony we're to strive for in the Psalms doesn't regard the tone of our voice, but the tone of our heart. I'm afraid that our hearts are often out of harmony with the heart of the psalmist, in this instance, David. Remember that David was a man after God's own heart. So if our hearts are out of tune with David, our hearts are out of tune with God. Of so much worship, no doubt Jesus still says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We can't read God's music, and it's because we're not content to be a part of the choir singing of God's King. We want a solo wherein we shine as the King. We want this song not only to be sung by us, we want this song to be sung of us. Ours is the disharmony of idolatry paraded about as worship. As we begin the psalm, we're, we're on the right track if we're asking ourselves, who is singing? And you need to realize that the psalms are clothed in purple, they're written in royal blue, so many of them, especially when you see a psalm of David. You should be on that track. But even so, does David intend for us to sing... As though we were him speaking of himself in the third person. That's clear that David is doing that. O Yahweh, in your strength the king rejoices. David is singing of himself in the third person. But this is to the choir master. This is something that a choir was to sing. So is the choir to understand that they have a part, as it were, in a musical where their voice is the voice of the king. We're often to take up the Psalms in precisely this way. For instance, in Psalm 610, whenever we sing, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment, we're to understand that first of all, we're not singing those words of our enemies as they are our enemies, just in and of ourselves. But we first put those words in the mouth of our king, knowing that his enemies will be destroyed. And then as we identify with God's King, we understand that the enemies of the church are the enemies of Christ. But we need to take those steps. In this way, you see, so many of the Psalms are more like a national anthem than a personal love song for you to sing to God. So that's one way we should understand the Psalm of David, or could it be that The choir is being led by God's King to, as a choir, as the people of God, as Israel, as the church, sing of God's King and his relationship to Yahweh. Well, either way, notice this the psalm is not about us. We can't solve this problem looking simply at verse 1 or the verses that follow. It's not made clear, I believe, until you come to verse 13. Be exalted, O Yahweh, in your strength. We will sing. So this is not a psalm like so many that we've studied in the past where we're to understand we're singing with the voice of the king. We are singing as the people of God, as the choir, but we're singing of the king's joy and salvation here. So let's prepare our hearts then to harmonize with this psalm. As the choir of God, let's raise and lift the voices of our hearts as we rejoice in the King's joy. This psalm is to be an expression of our joy, but it's not our joy that we're singing of. It's the King's joy. As you read the psalms that are written by David, marvel at the way he worships. But don't stop there. Think of the one he anticipates. Rather than you simply saying, I want to worship God like David. And that that's good. But first realize this, so often you're to think of him acting in this capacity as the king. And think of the son's love of the father, the one who David anticipates. And now our harmony is ready to grow rich indeed as our worship starts to become More robustly Trinitarian. Our hearts begin to harmonize with the eternal love and joy and fellowship of our triune God. Let's take one further act of preparation. In structure, this psalm has two stanzas verses 1 through 7 concern the blessedness or the salvation of Yahweh's king, verses 8 through 13, the destruction of Yahweh's enemies. Now, how do these two relate? Because it might appear as if you've got two independent psalms here. One's about the salvation of Yahweh's king, the other about the destruction of Yahweh's enemies. How do these two come together? Do they relate at all? Psalm 2 makes the answer plain. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The rule of the king of Israel, ideally, was to be the expression of the rule of God. Their rules are identified. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords away. They are gathered against Yahweh and His anointed, His king. And so the enemies of God are the enemies of God's king. The destruction of Yahweh's enemies is the salvation that the king is rejoicing in. In verse 1. But is David so arrogant to think that the people want to rejoice in his joy? Hey, I'm happy! Sing! Is is that the kind of self-centeredness that's being brought here? And here's where the value of good theology is seen to be so helpful. You misunderstand all of this if you don't have some grasp of the doctrine of federal headship. And you don't need to have that particular handle floating in your mind, but you need that concept. And the handle is really helpful to understand whether or not you're picking the concept up. Federal basically means covenantal, that there's a kind of pact that's the basis of a relationship. And headship denotes authority. And so we have a federal Government. It's a government where others represent us based upon a covenant, the U.S. Constitution. Those who are in authority are representing us upon the basis of a covenant. Now, ultimately, there are only two federal heads over all humanity. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Both of these are kings. Adam was given dominion and he was told to be fruitful and multiply. And when he sinned, everything under his kingdom was impacted. We became sinners in Adam and all creation was ruined under him. In Christ, we see the reversal of this. The Christ who David anticipates under his federal monarchy. His salvation means the people's salvation. Now, as regards David, you see that this salvation was deliverance from his enemies. We mustn't think salvation in kind of the narrow sense that we might be tempted to. But his salvation, his deliverance meant the people's. And so, if David fell, the kingdom fell. And likewise, if Jesus falls, the church falls. If Christ is not risen, we are dead in our sins and of all men most miserable. So do you see how this psalm now means so much more? If we take it not as a solo for us to make our own, but rather as a choral wherein the people of God rejoice in the king's joy and salvation because his salvation is their salvation. If the king is saved, the kingdom is saved. This salvation involves, verse 2, Yahweh giving the king his heart's desire. You've given him his heart's desire and you've not withheld the request of his lips. What was the desire of David's heart in his best moments? Already alluded to 1 Samuel 14 earlier where God speaks of David as a man after his own heart. David was a poet. Poetry is the language of the heart. You read throughout poetry of David, and it becomes clear that the heart of David's poetry was his God. His zeal was for the glory of his God and the good of God's people, of whom he was their king. What's the desire of the heart of the one who is the son of David and yet David's Lord, the Christ, our Lord? What's his desire? What, What are his prayers? John 17, he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus wants the Father to glorify him, not as an end in itself, but because he wants this glory so that he might glorify the Father. But when Jesus prays that in John 17, whenever David is praying here and his prayers are answered here, they're praying as the federal head of the people of God. They're praying as the king of God's people. Whenever Jesus prays, Father, glorify me that the Son may glorify you, it's within the context of him representing his people. And so he goes on to say, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since because you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. What is eternal life? He answers, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus wants the Father to be glorified so that He might glorify the Father and all of this, in the context of our knowing them, and that knowing them as eternal life, the king's joy is the people's joy. Do you see why they sing? Near the end of Jesus' prayer, he asked. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see how much sweeter, how much richer these words are whenever we sing them of our King rather than of ourselves? Our greatest blessings come Not because our prayers are heard, but because Jesus' prayers are heard. Hear Jesus' prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they may also be in us. This joy, this exchange of joy between Father and Son. He's inviting, he's praying these things that we might participate in. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now hear that prayer. And then hear this. You have given him his heart's desire. Have not withheld the request of his lips. Jesus prays for us far better than we ever pray for ourselves. And his prayers are answered. The next several verses, three through six, unfold for us the rich blessings that fall upon the king in answer to this prayer, this prayer which is part of his request for this salvation and this deliverance from his enemies. First, a crown of gold is set on his head. And there's some discussion whether we're meant to understand this as a wreath or a crown. This word that in particular that's used here can be translated as circlet or wreath or garland. So we you to understand something like the Roman victor's crown after, after some kind of... He's become a champion of some sort. Or is this a crown of coronation? Is he actually becoming king? You remember in 1 Chronicles 20, 1-2, David, already king, after the king of the Ammonites is defeated, takes that heavy golden crown and places it on his own head. He already was king. This is just sort of a crowning of exaltation and triumph. Is that what is meant here? This kind of crown of gold? Or is it an actual crown of coronation, him becoming king? Well, the Son of God, when we're considering Him, is eternally king. He's always ruled. He's always reigned. But there is an exaltation. There is a coronation that can only follow His salvation. That's the context of the psalm. And so, we come to Colossians one 15 through 15-17, and we first read of the Son's eternal rule. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. But then it goes on in verses 18-20, through 20, to speak of the king's redemptive rule, and he is the head of the body. This means he's the one who represents us, and he can do that because, as the second Adam, he took on flesh. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's, he's the beginning. Of new creation as the first fruits of the new creation in his resurrection. And he is this that in everything he might be preeminent. He already was preeminent and supreme, but this is talking about in his act of redemption. It goes on. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This reconciliation, such that all things are made new under the redemptive rule in Christ, can only come because the King was saved, resurrected. Romans 1.4 tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, was declared to be the Son of God in power. That's this very coronation, this exaltation. He's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The eternal King, infinite in glory, eternally glorious, yet because He became man as the God-man, as our Head, as the Christ, as the King, is then coronate, has this coronation and this exaltation, this crown placed upon Him as the resurrected Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father for all enemies to be put under his feet, acting as our high priest. Second, he receives, in answer to this request, life, length of days, forever and ever, verse 4. How often do we see David crying out for life, for deliverance, speaking of his life as though he's in the pit His enemies have surrounded him. He's crying out from the grave. In the next psalm, you'll see that the Christ, God's King, was forsaken. He went down to the pit of pits on the cross, bearing the wrath of the Father. And yet, beautiful irony as he's bearing the wrath of the father against the sins of his elect never did he please his father more and upon the basis of that perfect trust and righteousness the father raised him by the spirit of power saying this is my son David's throne is God's king is said to be a forever throne in the Davidic covenant we learn in 2nd Samuel 7 God promised to David your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever and David's throne has this abiding presence not because there's no end to his lineage but because a forever king came to forever sit on that throne. Third, God's king through this salvation is given glory, verse 5, and bestowed with splendor and majesty. Notice that this glory comes through salvation. And this is a glory and splendor that are bestowed on the Son. As Jesus is God, Glory and splendor and majesty were infinitely and eternally His. But this is a glory that comes through salvation. This is a splendor and majesty that are bestowed. Philippians 2, 8-10 tells us, That because of Christ's humble obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is a glory and splendor and majesty that are bestowed and given to the King as our King. Fourth, Yahweh makes our king blessed and glad with the joy of his presence, verse 6. But do you notice how this blessing is a—it's linked to the previous one? For you make him blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For, because... You make Him most blessed forever. The glory and the splendor and the majesty of the Christ have their grounding in His joy in the presence of His Father. That glory and splendor and majesty that are put upon Him are a reflection of the joy He has in the presence of His Father. In the 16th Psalm, God's King exclaims, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Oh, before you begin to sing that of yourself, hear God's King saying this. There's a little phrase in 1 Timothy 1.11 that's easily overlooked that brings out this. It speaks of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, the good news of God's glory, in a particular glory, the glory of His happiness, or the glory of His joy, there's good news that God is so joyful, Begone all presentations of the gospel that speak of God redeeming man because he was so lonely, or needy, that is not the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the glory, the shining forth of how happy and joyous God is in and of Himself that He would give His Son to invite someone not into a vacuum, but the fountain of all. God's delight in God is the infinite spring from which the gospel flows, and it is the infinite ocean into which, which the gospel empties. The gospel not only flows from God's joy in God, it flows into God's joy in God. And here's his joy. Psalm 45.7, we read that the king is anointed with oil, the oil of gladness above all his companions. This is not the eternal joy of the Son, This is added to that, that never ceasing and never ending, but added to that as the Christ he's anointed. It's what Christ means. He's the anointed one, anointed as our king, and he's anointed with the oil of gladness above all. But he's anointed as your king so that the beer, the, the oil that, that is flowing down off the beard of our high priest drips down onto those he makes atonement for. Is there any joy like this? Spurgeon writes, The rejoicing of our risen Lord must, like his agony, be unutterable. If the mountains of His joy rise in proportion to the depth of the valleys of His grief, then His sacred bliss is as high as the seventh heaven. But then consider this. His agony on the cross, though infinite and immeasurable, was limited in duration. His joy is eternal. Spurgeon goes on, the loving favor, favor of his Father, the countenance of God, gives Jesus exceeding joy. This is the purest stream to drink of, and Jesus chooses no other. His joy is full, its source divine, its continuance eternal, its degree exceeds all bounds. Here is the highest joy. The infinite God, infinitely delighting in what is infinitely delightful, Himself. The Father rejoices in the Son. The Son rejoices in the Father. What of the Spirit, you ask? The Spirit rejoices in the Son's love of the Father, and the Father's love of the Son. And the Father rejoices in the Spirit's rejoicing in the Father's love for the Son. And this, the Son rejoices, and the Spirit's rejoicing in the Son's love of the Father. But again, in all this, what we're reading this morning, we get a glimpse into how the Trinity has eternally related, but what we're learning here is of the joy that exists in the Godhead in Our redemption and salvation. The joy and glory that they want us to see and behold and participate in. How is it that these blessings, as part of the king's salvation, the salvation that comes in answer to his prayer, how is it that they came to be bestowed? What's the ground, the basis of them? Verse 7. For, because... The king trusts in Yahweh. You don't have to merit your way into this joy. The good news, the glory of the blessed God, that it's not upon the basis of what we sinners do, because all we sinners can do is sin. But our king, our head, trusted perfectly. And His Father. And that's why these blessings abound upon Him as our King, representing us. Such that all His blessedness is our blessedness. His salvation is our salvation. Look at His life as He perfectly trusts the Father, obedient unto the Father, walking even unto the cross, resigning Himself to the Father's will and trusting Himself to the Father. You see His love for the Father. And so, as we finish this first stanza, do you see why it is that we sing so of the King's salvation? Because it's our salvation. you see why, it's, why we sing of His joy? Because it's our joy. Calvin comments, This psalm contains a public and solemn thanksgiving for the prosperous and happy condition of the king. It is shown that the safety and prosperity of the king ought to produce public and general rejoicing through the whole realm, inasmuch as God by this means intends to preserve the whole body in safety. But above all, it was the design of the Holy Spirit here to direct the ends of the faithful to Christ, who was the end and perfection of this kingdom, and to teach them that they could never be saved except under the head, which God himself had appointed over them. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Behold your kingdom king in all of his joy and exalted glory our shepherd does not fleece the sheep he lays his life down for them so don't think that this glory he's going to keep and contain to himself don't think that this joy is something he keeps and contains to himself it overflows onto his own jesus did not need these blessings for himself He achieved them so that the oil of gladness with which he was anointed as our head might flow unto all those who are united to him by the very spirit of his anointing. As we turn from the salvation and joy of Yahweh's king to the destruction of Yahweh's enemies in verses 8 through 13, you might notice that we move from the past tense to the future tense. We were rejoicing in a salvation that had happened And now it's speaking about a destruction of the enemies that we're waiting for, we're asking for. What does this mean? Are we wrong in our our thought that the destruction of the enemies is the salvation that we're rejoicing in? There are a few possibilities. One, the first stanza might be a song of faith. With the people of God rejoicing in the future as though it's already past. This is often something we see in the Psalms. Faith speaks of the future as though it's done and accomplished. Or, until Christ returns with David, this was obvious, until Christ finally puts all enemies under His feet on the day of His return, there will always be more enemies. And so having experienced one salvation, they cry out for more. And that goes on to this one. David's salvation anticipates that of the Messiah. When the enemies of God are destroyed utterly and completely, and the saints enter into their eternal Sabbath of rest. All of these are true, and I don't see our text narrowing the focus to any one of them, so perhaps it is that the Spirit wants us to recall all these things to mind. Likewise, the resurrected and ascended Christ seated at the right hand of God, supreme over all things. Even though this is so, we long for that rule and reign to be fully manifest, all enemies under His feet. And we sing of that day the song of faith as though it's already so. It is so certain, it's done. The decisive blow was dealt at Calvary because of the victory of the Lamb by His spilled blood and resurrection life, we should be all the more assured of these things. One, Yahweh's enemies will be found, verse 8. Those who do not stand with God's King stand against God's King. There are no Switzerland's. Pretended neutrality is explicit rebellion. If you are not in Christ, you are an Adam, you are a sinner, an enemy of God. If you're not part of this choir, you're one of those who are to be destroyed. You've got a part in this psalm. Either as singing or being sung of. And the only two that are sung of here are Christ, and that's not you. So your part is the enemy of God. All His enemies will be found, none will escape His hand, Revelation 6. We read on the day that his hand begins to squeeze tight around all his enemies. That then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? The fury of the Lamb is so much that they cry out for a mountain to fall on them and hide them. But as Hebrew 4 tells us, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And Hebrews 10 goes on to tell us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Second, Yahweh's enemies will suffer his wrath, verse 9. At his appearing, his wrath will consume all his foes. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul encourages Encourages us saying, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed." The enemies of Christ are the enemies of His church. And they will face the vengeance of the bridegroom for their sins against His bride. Third, Yahweh's enemies will be destroyed, verse 10. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. No progeny, no lineage, they're cut off. There will be no survivors to fight another day. You remember in Genesis 3 where it's promised that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And of course we understand that ultimately it is the seed of the woman singular who crushes the head of the serpent, but that is a federal representative seed. There are two offsprings. There's the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. So you read through Genesis and you notice that there's always two genealogies put side by side. And so you see the lineage of Seth beside that of Cain. You see Isaac alongside that of uh, Ishmael. You see Jacob alongside that of Esau. Picking up on the Bible's language of citizenship, Augustine spoke of these two seeds as two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And the city of man is doomed to be destroyed not one citizen will survive. That city will not carry on. It will be ended completely. Fourth, the rebellion of Yahweh's enemies is therefore, verse 11, futile. They plan evil against you. Though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. They plan, they scheme, they plot. Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. But Psalm 2 goes on to tell us, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Speaking of the folly of such plots, you remember when the early church prayed, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Everyone was against him to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All their hatred, all their planning, all their scheming did nothing but accomplish his plan. It did nothing but accomplish the very blessings that we're reading of in this text, falling upon the Christ as our King. At his moments, moment of greatest weakness, indeed through that very weakness, Christ defeated our greatest foes. And now, now that he's resurrected, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, what chance do they have? The rebellion is futile because, verse 12, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. He has not a bow, but bows. He aims for the face, and he never misses. And the choir sings of this and and rejoices. Be exalted, O Yahweh, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Spurgeon comments, the destruction of the wicked is a fitting subject for joy to the friends of righteousness. We pity the lost for they are men, but we cannot pity them as enemies of Christ. None can escape from the wrath of the victorious king, nor is it desirable that they should. Saints, it is never wrong for us to long for God to be God. Let us be zealous for the glory of our king, be it by salvation or be it by damnation, he is worthy. His people will be saved. His enemies will fall, and these two destinies are linked so that the one means the other. You cannot rejoice in the first stanza of this psalm unless you own up to the truth of the second stanza. Because it is the destruction of Yahweh's enemies that will mean the final and ultimate joy of God's people in their king. May his enemies perish. May the king and his people be blessed forevermore. Sinner, hear this song in terror. You're not simply a child out of harmony. You're an enemy singing a war song against this king. But know this, This choir is made up only of sinners made saints by the grace of God. In the second psalm, this grace is extended to you. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The wrath spoken of in the latter part of this psalm. The king bore. Bore. Jesus distributes nothing He hasn't borne. And He bore it so that those who trust in Him might be forgiven, clothed with His regal righteousness, and have His joy and His salvation as their own. Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And join the choir, exalting the King. Let's pray. Father, for any who do not know You, it is our earnest desire that You save them now. And add them to Your choir, singing of Your glory. Rejoicing in the very joy of the triune God. Father, even so, we rest in this. Christ is supreme. Our King is unconquerable. Our salvation is sure. Be exalted, O Yahweh, in Your strength. We will sing and praise Your power. In Christ's name, Amen.